Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Jake. If I haven't met you yet, I'm one of the pastors here on staff. We had last week several kickoffs. We had our youth kickoff. Where's our Candeo youth? Okay, and then we had our salt kickoff. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah. So this room was filled with college students on Thursday. And what's, uh, as I was sitting, I was sitting back there, I always sit in the back when I come to Salt Company because I just love seeing all the students. And as I was thinking about that, I was just thanking God for the space that he has given us to be able to have events like we just had this last week. Many of you probably weren't here about five years ago when we moved into this building. It's a crazy story. I don't have time to recount that. But one of the reasons we actually uh, loved this space was because it was closer to the campus. And I'll never forget the first, <laughs> the first Sunday, Cody Klein got up here and was like, you know, on the opening Sunday in this building, he's like, yes, we want to reach every person in those red roofs. And what he meant was you and I, what we didn't know at the time was that Orchard Hill Church also had, has red roofs. And we're like, oh no, like, we're, we're not trying to reach Orchard Hill, we're trying to reach you and I. But that was one of the appealing things of this space was that we would be closer to the campus because uh, we just so love college students. And so it's awesome to have you back uh, once again this week. But anyways, we As we were looking to get into this space, we uh, had a capital campaign to raise money to be able to purchase this building uh, and to work it out financially in a way that made sense for us as a church, that we wouldn't get strapped down financially and become house poor, you know, and so many of you uh, were here for that, and so you looked at your budget, many of, like, we pinched pennies, we rearranged our budgets, Uh, many of you had garage sales, or you started flipping things, or uh, some sold investments and uh, sold items and things like that that. One of the things that our family did to contribute to this campaign, um, and believe me, it wasn't much because we don't have really nice cars, but we sold one of our cars and we took about half of what we got from the sale of that car and gave it to the campaign to buy this building. And then the other half we took and bought a car that was, uh, was a step down, which was kind of hard to do because our cars are already just naturally a step down. But we took another step down uh, with our car and we bought a 2003 Toyota Highlander. Now, We have had Toyotas in the past, loved them, super reliable, all that stuff. But for some reason, whatever this Highlander, I think like they started building it on a Friday and they ended it on a Monday, you know, one of those cars where it's like they're looking forward to the weekend and then they're recovering from the weekend, right? And that was our car. We got a lemon somehow and it wasn't long before a lot of things started going wrong with our Highlander. And I don't consider myself a mechanic, but if I can save a few dollars, uh, I know how to use Google, right? So if I can figure it out and I'm like, I don't think... I don't think I'll get hurt and I don't think I'll mess this up. Maybe we'll find out, you know, I'll do that. And so I spent probably the next three months after we bought this Highlander, about every weekend I had a weekend long date with our 2003 Toyota Highlander where I'm under this car, I'm, you know, fixing belts and suspension and, you know, mufflers and, uh, and, you know, differentials and things like, and I'm just like, I'm way in over my head. I, I phoned a friend who's an actual mechanic, Colton, and maybe you're in this or maybe you're in the next one. Uh, you know, and I was working on this thing, you know, you're smashing your fingers, you're, you're dropping things, you're, you're using the full breadth of your vocabulary, you know, like, like you're just glad you're in your garage, right? And like the neighbors, you know, are minding their own business. But like, so it was me and this Highlander and I got to know that car really, really well. Like really well. 
It was one of those things where, you know, you get to a point where you just kind of like look at a bolt and you're like, I know exactly what socket I need for that. No guessing. I know this car super well. Now that car was the bane of my existence. If you have an 03 Highlander, please do not drop it off in my house. I will set it on fire. Okay, like <laughs> I'm not gonna help you. You know, I'll, I'll refer you to Colton. So that car was a bane of my existence. But what I think happened was that God used that blue pile of garbage. He, he used that to teach me something really important. It's something fairly obvious, but something that's very easy to miss. And what God used that Highlander to teach me was that you can know a lot about something and not love that thing. You can know a lot about something, but knowing a lot about something does not equal loving that thing. Oh, I knew that Highlander. Knew it like the back of my hand. I knew it on a factual level. And that's the bolts, where things went. But my knowledge of that car was in no way an indicator of my love for that car. See, you can know something factually and not know something relationally. You can know something factually. You can know someone factually, but that is not the sum total of what indicates an actual affection for that person or that thing. And so last week, what we began was a, was a three short, it was a short three-week series on discipleship. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? What does it really mean to be a Christian? What does it really mean to be a Christian? Which that question is hugely important because for a long time, especially in America, it was pretty advantageous to be a Christian, it was just kind of assumed, right? Like the Bible, the greatest selling book of all time, five billion copies worldwide. Like everyone has a copy of this. If you ask someone kind of randomly for a long period of time in our culture, in our society, if, if you ask them, are you a Christian? They'd say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. But then when you open this book and you read about what it actually means to be a Christian, it looks very different than what most people in America think that it means to be a Christian. Very different. And you go, how does that happen? How can there be such a disconnect between what people think it means to be a Christian and what the Bible actually says that it means to be a Christian? How can that happen? Well, I think part of what contributes to that is that we can come up with our own definitions of what we think a Christian is, and then we can assess ourselves against that definition when what we need to do is look at how the Bible defines what a Christian is, what a follower of Jesus is, and then assess ourselves according to that. You see, there are a lot of people, and I'm not trying to be pessimistic about this, because this is actually part of the reason why we, we're doing this series, is because we don't want this to be true of our church. I don't want this to be true of you. There are a lot of people and possibly a lot of you right now in this room who think that you are a Christian, but you actually aren't. And so what Stephen showed us last week is that one of the first distinguishing marks of a true Christian, of a true follower of Christ, is that you know Christ, not just on a factual level, but on a relational level. But being a Christian means that you know something. 
It means that you know something. Now that doesn't mean that you're smarter. It doesn't mean that you have access to some like secret information that nobody else, it's not like this is like some club, you know, we didn't have bouncers at the door. It's not like, it's not like that you know something in the sense that you're better than everyone else, but it's that you know something in the sense that there is a center of the Christian faith that must be known. And what must be known is Jesus Christ. You must know who he is. You must know that he came. You must know why he came, what the problem he came to solve was. This is why Romans 10, 14 says, how then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? In other words, people don't know something that they need to know. And how can they know it if someone doesn't tell them? But it is also to say that nobody is born knowing this. You see, nobody is born a Christian. Nobody is born a follower of Christ. Nobody is born knowing who Jesus is or what Jesus has done, which means that there is no such thing as having been a Christian your whole life. Now, what you might mean when you say that is, I've been a Christian a long time, and that's fine. But there is no such thing as actually being a Christian your whole life because no one is born a Christian. No one in their earliest days of infancy know Christ. And so the first mark of a genuine Christian is knowing Christ. And what we're going to look at this second week is the second mark of a genuine Christian. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. And chapter 22 is getting close to the end. So Matthew chapter 22, and as you turn there, here's a little bit of a background on what we're looking at in Matthew 22. So in this section of Matthew, what we have is kind of this like battle of wits happening where you have the the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the scribes, the religious leaders of the day, they are coming to Jesus with various questions. And these, these questions aren't genuine. These questions are meant, the intention of these questions is to trap Jesus, to get him, to ask him a question where no matter what he says, his answer will get himself in trouble. That's what's happening here in Matthew 22. As we get to the end of chapter 22, if you look down here at verse 34, this is the third question in this battle of wits, okay? So Matthew 22, verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. And one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest. So here's this expert in the law. Uh, the, the Mark account, which we're going to look at a little bit later on, uh, indicates that this is, it's, the, it's a description of the same account. This expert in the law was a scribe, and this guy comes with a legal question. What is the most important commandment? Jesus, of all the 613 commandments in the Torah, which one is the most important? Which one carries with it the greatest weight? Now, this wasn't a debate that was uncommon at the time. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, would have this debate often about weightier issues in the law and lighter issues in the law because some laws had greater weight, some laws had lesser weight. We know this to be true because when you are drag racing down Green Hill to get to church and you get pulled over, you are glad that there are weightier issues in the law and lighter issues in the law because you're glad that when you get pulled over, you aren't treated as though you just murdered someone. Now, if you're speeding away because you murdered someone, maybe you should get treated that way. But in general, 
You're glad that there are weightier and lighter issues in the law. And this is what they would have been talking about. What's the greatest command? What's the weightiest command? So this wasn't necessarily an uncommon conversation to which Jesus answered. Verse 37. He said to them, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. Now, Jesus didn't make up this answer on the spot, but what he does is he, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, way back in the Old Testament. He's quoting from this much cherished passage of Scripture that was called the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, the very beginning of that chapter, it was called the Shema. Shema simply means listen, because that whole chapter actually begins with listen. Okay, so this was basically for the Jews, the John 3.16 of their day, right? Like if Jewish Tim Tebow had put a verse in his eye black, it would have been Deuteronomy 6.5. Like that's just what would it have been? I don't think it would have been football, maybe soccer. I don't know. I don't know what they played. Probably not American football. But this was their John 3.16, This verse was super common and what it meant and what they knew that it meant was love the Lord your God with everything you have, with your whole being. Like it wasn't meant to be, you know, rigidly broken down. Like, well, here's what the heart means. Here's what the mind means. Here's what the soul and the strength, like what exactly do each of, no, like what it meant was love God with your whole self from the top of your head to the tips of your toes, with everything that you have. This is the greatest and most important command. And here's the thing. It is still the greatest and most important command. If you were wondering, what is, if God can only ask one thing of me, what is it? If if I could know precisely the ultimate will of God for my life, what is it? It's this. Love the Lord your God with all that you are, with all that you have, with all that you do, with all of your body, mind, affections, your soul, all of it. That is God's ultimate will for your life. This is, this, this is generally the crux of the conversation that I'll have often with college students, especially seniors who are getting kind of angsty about what they're gonna do with the rest of their life. Once they've graduated with this major, they're not quite sure if they wanna go into teaching or I wanna go into business. I don't really know what I wanna do. What does God want me to do? Uh, and I go, God is way more concerned about what you love than he is about what you do. Because whether you are a teacher in a school, whether you're a stay-at-home parent, whether you are an engineer in a cubicle, God's ultimate purpose for your life does not change based on your occupation. Because wherever you are, whatever you do, his ultimate goal for your life is that you love him with all that you have. And wherever you are at, that you would express your love for him in every way to all people in those places. So while they were asking for one answer, what's the greatest command? He gives it to them. Love the Lord your God with everything you have. This, you know this, Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. He sees their question and then he gives them two answers. Not just one. Jesus has a pattern of giving you more than you asked for. He gives them two answers. Verse 39, you ask for the greatest command, I'll give you the greatest and I'll give you the second greatest. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. 
The second is like it. So you have the greatest command, and then you have the second greatest command, but it's really, really close. It's actually so close that you can't break them apart because they go together. And now some of you, some of you have maybe heard this command, love your neighbor as yourself. And what has happened is that it has been twisted in such a way to really emphasize the need for self-love. Here's what I mean. That sometimes this passage is taught and it's like, well, if you're gonna love your neighbor as yourself, you really, really need to make sure you're loving yourself first. You really, really need to make sure you're taking care of yourself. You really, you know, you really need to focus on yourself. If you're gonna love people the way that you love yourself, make sure first and foremost that you love yourself. But here's the thing. By saying love your neighbor as yourself does not exalt self-love as a virtue, but instead it presupposes it. It presupposes that you are already loving yourself. You already love yourself. Now you might say, Jake, how can you say that? There are plenty of people now more than ever who don't love themselves, who don't think highly of themselves, who are actually very critical of themselves, who need, who need therapy because they don't love themselves. How can you say that we already love ourselves? Here's how. Because self-love isn't a matter of whether you think positively about yourself or not. We're not talking about positive emotions towards yourself. Self-love is about giving disproportionate attention to yourself. You see, self-love isn't about adoration. Self-love is about attention. Because pride is expressed both in blatant arrogance and harsh self-criticism. Pride is expressed both in saying, aren't I so great? And in saying, aren't I so terrible? Because notice the subject of that sentence, I. You see what pride is, is it's a disproportionate attention that you give to yourself, whether that is positive attention or negative attention. Pride is both self-love and self-loathing because your attention remains on yourself. But loving your neighbor as yourself means that instead of drawing disproportionate attention to yourself, which is something that we already do, you draw disproportionate attention to others. That instead of drawing disproportionate attention to your needs, your desires, your wants, your aspirations, you draw disproportionate attention to the desires of others, to the needs of others, to the wants of others, to the preferences of others. You see, true humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's actually thinking of yourself less. So which command is in the law is the greatest? Love God and love people. Now, here's the thing. They already knew this. Both of these commands, love God, Deuteronomy 6, love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19. They already knew this. They knew their Old Testament scriptures. Jesus is using the Old Testament to answer their question. They knew this. Not only did they know it, they agreed with him about these being the greatest of the commandments. Mark's account in Mark chapter 12 of this same exact interaction, the scribe, after hearing Jesus answer the question in this way, look at what Mark says. Look at, look at how Mark says that the scribe responded. Here's what the scribe said. 
Then the scribe, the guy who asked him this question, said to him, you are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one. That's how the Shema started. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You have rightly said that he is one. And there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt, the burnt offerings and sacrifices. So he's agreeing with Jesus. And look at what Jesus says. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to them, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Here's this scribe. He knew the right answer. He even agreed with Jesus. Jesus, what Jesus said wasn't a totally new thing and it wasn't actually something they disagreed with. But yet Jesus still says to this scribe who agrees with them, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Which in one sense is super encouraging, right? To be not far. You're not far from the kingdom of God. He's not far, he's really close. You believe in God, that's good. Many, even, even still, many Americans at least believe in God or believe that there is a God or the possibility of a God or live their life as though there is a God. Many people still are like, yeah, I believe, I believe in God. So he believed in God. Not only did he believe in God, but he also understood that you must love God. And he agrees that loving people is more important than burnt offerings, that loving other people is more important than religious ritual and sacrifices and burnt offerings. And while most people who call themselves Christians would say, hey, check out this scribe. That's good enough, right? Believes the right things. He's agreeing with Jesus. Jesus looks at him. It says you're not far from the kingdom of God, which while in one sense that's very encouraging, in another sense it's also very bad. It's really bad news. Because not close is not the same as being in. It's kind of, it's kind of like that old saying, like close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades, Right? There's only a couple scenarios where being close is good enough. And Jesus is saying, this isn't one of them. You're close, but you're not in. Now, some of you sitting here this morning are incredibly close to the kingdom of God. You're really, really close. You believe there's a God. You maybe even want a relationship with God. Maybe you've tried a bunch of things to satisfy that desire, that deep longing that you have in you, and nothing has actually fulfilled that. And so you're done drawing from those empty wells. You're like, well, maybe I'll try God out. And in many ways, you're like this expert in the law, like this scribe, like you're close. You're very close. That's good. But you're not Quite there. So what's missing? What's missing? Like if this scribe seemingly had everything that he needed to be in the kingdom, but Jesus says you're close but not there, what in the world is he missing? Well, Jesus shows both in Mark's account and in Matthew's account what is missing. And he does it in the verses just immediately following, verse, verse 41 of Matthew 22, 41 through 46. 
says this, while the Pharisees were together, Jesus questioned them. Now he turns the tables on them. They've been asking the questions. Now I have a question for you. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They replied, David's. Now they're referring to David, King David, who wrote most of the Psalms, many of the Psalms. And he asked them, how is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him, the Messiah, Lord? The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one was able to answer him at all. And from that day, no one dared to question him anymore. Now, what in the world is Jesus doing quoting Psalm 110? Why? Why in Mark's account and in Matthew's account does he put this right here? It's because Jesus was answering a fundamental question. They asked, what's the greatest command? He said, love the Lord your God. And now Jesus is answering the fundamental question, who is the Lord God? Who is this Lord God that I should love with everything I have? And what Jesus has the audacity to do is to connect himself with the Messiah who was to be David's son. Jesus has the audacity because they would have known exactly what he was saying. To us, it's, it's a little obtuse. We're kind of like, why are you putting that there? They would have known what he was doing was that he was continuing to connect himself with being that Messiah who was David's Lord. And so he connects himself to the very center of their most cherished confession by saying, I am the Lord God that you should love in this way. Why does that matter? That matters because this is what the scribe was missing. You see, the scribe loved God, but he did not love Jesus. The scribe, the scribe believed in God, but he did not believe in Jesus. You see, until you have Jesus as the central focus of your faith and love, you're close, but you aren't in. So the question this morning is not, do you love God? The question this morning is not, do you go to church? The question this morning is not, do you attend a connection group? The question this morning is not, do you give 10% of your income to the church? The question this morning is, do you love Christ? Is Jesus Christ your Lord God? That word Lord means master. Is Jesus Christ your master? You, you, now, now some, many people will say, I don't have a master. Oh, yes, you do. Yes, you do. The question is not if you have a master. The question is who or what is your master? Because the reality is, is that whatever you love supremely will be the master of your life. It just, it, you can't help it. You can't help but have whatever you love supremely control everything in your life. That's what masters do. They direct, they guide, they control. So here, here's, how, here's how this works. If you love money supremely, then money or the accumulation of money or the, or the holding on to of money or the, uh, 
um, or the growing of money will control everything in your life. Your job, your investments, it'll control your schedule, your time. It'll dictate your moral boundaries, what you are and aren't willing to do to get it, to keep it, to make it grow. You see, if you love your children supremely, or if you love your spouse supremely, then their desires, their wants, their expectations, uh, their, their you know, scheduling demands will control everything about your life. If you love politics supremely, you won't be able to get enough of it. It'll consume everything you watch, everything you listen to, everything you want to talk about because it's your ultimate love. If your supreme love is attention or approval, that will control your wardrobe, your finances, your interests, your vocabulary, your budget, your time commitments, anything that will get you the most likes, anything that will get you the most comments, anything that will get you the most swipes, anything that will get you the glance of that other, of the person or the gender that you want to just at least give you a glance, that will dictate, that, that, for some of you that might have dictated how long you spent getting ready this morning. Because it's your supreme love. What we love supremely will always become our master. We just can't help it. And so to love Jesus supremely means that he becomes the master. He becomes the orienting center. He becomes the filter through which all of your life flows. And so, the, so you go, how can I tell if I actually love Jesus? The answer to that is how much of your life does he actually control? Because whatever you love most supremely will control your life. And if you say, I love Jesus, but there's nothing in your life that actually indicates that he's controlling anything of it, it's probably an indicator that what you think is true of yourself is actually not true of yourself. So being a disciple means loving Christ with everything you are and everything you have and loving people. So loving who Christ is and loving what Christ loves. Both. Inextricably connected. Love your neighbor as yourself, which then begs the question, who is my neighbor, right? This is the exact same question that Jesus is asked in Luke chapter 10 by another Jewish expert in the law, to which Jesus replies about that famous story of the Good Samaritan. Have you heard the story of the Good Samaritan? Probably have. Where you have a man who is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he gets beaten up and left, you know, Almost, almost dead on the side of the road. And you have a priest walk by, see this guy, he does nothing. You have a Levite walk by, see this guy, does nothing. Priests and Levites, very, very religious people. But they do nothing. But then you have the Samaritan, who to the Jews were the ultimate outcast, the ultimate other, this half-breed, misfit group of people that the Jews wanted nothing to do with. But this Samaritan comes along and sees this man in his great need and has compassion on him and picks him up, puts him on his own animal, takes him to an inn, and at great cost to himself, provides the means for this man to get care and to be healed. 
And so in answer to the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus answers with your neighbor is the person who you have nothing to benefit from. Like they have nothing to offer you. Your interactions with them don't gain you any social status. They have nothing to give you. You see, it's very easy to love people because you love yourself. Did you know that? It, it, it often looks the same, very, very similar. It looks very generous from the outside, looks very kind, looks very charitable and noble. In fact, most people probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference between you loving people because you love yourself and you loving people because you love God. But here's what it looks like. Loving people because you love yourself often looks like serving, it often looks like giving, it often looks like encouraging, but what it has hidden within it in the deep motivation and the deep recesses of your heart, it has hidden within it a hope and an expectation that, that somehow at some point you will benefit from having done those things for other people. whether it's from the person that you've served or whether, how about this one, whether you just want to be seen as someone who serves. When you love people because you love yourself, the love that you show people actually isn't free. But instead, it's a loan that at some point you hope will get paid back, and if you're lucky, with interest that somehow you will benefit from having treated other people in this way. You'll live your life in a what goes around comes around kind of mentality, and what you hope is that what comes around is of more benefit to you than what it costs you to love people when you love people because you love yourself. But loving people, not because you love yourself, but because you love Christ, means loving people with no expectation or hope of benefiting from how you've loved them. It means paying attention to people who offer you no social benefit, who offer you no monetary gain, who offer you no social status, who offer you nothing within that relationship that, that could somehow be leveraged to benefit you later on. Now, this isn't to say you shouldn't love your family, you shouldn't love your friends, but Christian love Love informed by loving Christ for who he is goes beyond just loving your family and your friends and people that it benefits you to love them. But it extends to offering that same kind of sacrificial love and service to even your enemies. Not only those who you have nothing to gain, but also those who pose a threat to take away what you have. And you might go, that's ridiculous. How, how? How could I even do that? See, the only way you can do that is when you see that this is the exact kind of love shown toward you by Christ himself. You see, in that story of the Good Samaritan, you are not the Samaritan. The point of that story is not be the Good Samaritan. The point of that story is that you were the person beat up on the side of the road. You were beat up by sin. You were beat up by shame. You were left half for dead. And Jesus, at great cost to himself, took your debt on his shoulders. He paid the price so that you could be healed. 
The moral of that story is not, not, no, just get better, be a good Samaritan. It's like, no, no, no. See what Christ has done for you. See that Christ looked at you with compassion and at great cost to himself. He had nothing. What did you have to offer Jesus? What did I have to offer Jesus? Nothing. And yet he gave it all so that we could be healed, so that we could be loved, so that we could be included into his family. The reality is, is that these two commandments, love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself, these at the end of the day are impossible commandments. And the truth of the matter is that if we could love God with all that we have, and if we could love people perfectly, there would be no need for the cross. But the glorious truth this morning is that though you and I that despite how hard we try, though we can't perfectly love God and perfectly love people, Jesus Christ is the one who loved God from the top of his head to the tips of his toes. And Jesus Christ is the one who loved us as himself, who loved God perfectly and who loved people Perfectly. So to the question, how do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and how do you love your neighbor as yourself? You first cling to the one who perfectly loves God and who perfectly loves you. You cling to the one who has already done this impossible task. But here's what'll happen is that as you cling to him, as you look to him, as you find in him everything this world promises but can never give, as you look to him, your love for him will grow and you will become more infatuated with his beauty. And as that happens, you will begin to love what he loves more freely, more wholly, more truly. Because those who have truly received the saving love of Christ will become those who love who Jesus is and love what Jesus loves. The Holy Spirit of God who dwells within you will make sure that that happens. So church this morning, do you love Christ? If the answer to that is yes, is he the master of your life? And are you growing in your love for what he loves? I pray that that would be true of us. I pray that the spirit would help us to glorify him as we, as we become people who love who Christ is and love what he loves. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, you stopped along the road You saw us in our great need and at great cost to yourself. You picked us up. You took us in. You bandaged our wounds and you prayed, you paid the price for our healing. Oh God, would you help us to see the great love and mercy and generosity that you have shown us in Christ? Oh, and would our hearts respond to your love 
not as those who first love you, but because you first loved us, would we love you in response? Not out of obligation, not out of paying back some debt, but because of the great love you have shown us. Fill us with your love for yourself and fill us with love for others to sacrificially give, to sacrificially serve because you have done the same for us. Would we be that people? Would we be that church? Do that in us, Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.